Kate and James. Isn't it nice to have them leading together? Isn't that really good? Marriage people. Um, this morning we're starting a new series in, 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 in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, like I mentioned. Um, and this morning's really kind of a setup to that. And so our, our scripture reading this morning is from three different parts of the Old Testament because we're really trying to build a picture of how we get to where we are when we come to open the book of Ezra. Um, so this morning, you can turn to them if you want, but the, the, the scripture reading will be on the screen, so feel free to follow along. Uh, we're reading from Exodus chapter 19, and we're reading from 2 Chronicles 36, and we're reading from Ezra chapter 1. So a, a lot of scripture, but hopefully this will build up a really good picture for us. Um, and, and, and if you are new with us, uh, this is what we do. We, we teach through books of the Bible, and, and we really allow uh, the Holy Spirit then to set the agenda of, of, what, we're, of what we're speaking on. Um, we believe that the Bible is God's word. We believe that it's living and active. We believe that it's speaking to us. We believe that, that, that God wants to speak to us because we are his people and he loves us. Um, and so because of this, we believe that God is, uh, that, that, that God is speaking to us through his word. Uh, when I finish the reading, um, I will say this is the word of the Lord and we will all respond together as God's people. Thanks be to God. So let's begin our first reading in Exodus 19, starting at verse 4. And you can follow along on the screen. But if you have your Bible open, it's Exodus 19, and then 2 Chronicles 36, and then another finger in Ezra chapter 1. Let's hear from God's Word. Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, the people, by his messengers, because he had great compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And finally, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. Um, and even though there's a lot in that this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear um, what you're saying to us, your people, this morning. Uh, Father, we pray that you would speak powerfully to your people. Holy Spirit, be at work. Uh, remind us of your great love for us and of the great work of Jesus. Uh, it's for his glory and our joy that we pray. Amen. Um, so today we are starting this new series in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, although we're, we're really going to get into Ezra, Ezra next Sunday uh, properly. Today is going to be setting some of that up, and, and the reason we're studying these two books together is because in, in our Bibles they are uh, two separate books, but in the Hebrew Bible uh, they are just one book, one singular book with one author telling one story. And today's sermon is going to be a wee bit different than our normal sermons. Um, I'm going to cover some background stuff and, and some context. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of information, um, but, but it's important to do this so that we have a good understanding before we start studying the book. Um, because these people and events are, are far removed from us in both time and geography. Uh, we're, we're, the, the events of Ezra and Nehemiah start over 500 years before Jesus was even born. So we're, we're traveling back two and a half thousand years and traveling to the ancient Near East. And so we, it's difficult to just pick up this book and understand it in the same way as we would pick up a novel in 2022 and, 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 and just get it. These are different times. It's a unique context. And so we need to have a good understanding of what is happening before we get into it. And this book tells a story of the Israelites in exile. Like we heard, uh, this is a time after Jerusalem has been destroyed, and then how they came back into the land to rebuild the temple, to establish the people, and rebuild the city walls. And we see this uh, story unfold in three stages, under three different leaders. First of all, uh, we have, we'll hear of this guy called Zerubbabel, which is quite hard to say. It is spelt Zerubbabel, but in Hebrew, B is a v, v, so Zerubbabel. And he leads the effort in rebuilding the temple. And what we're going to see next week is that's where they start. They start with, we're going to start with rebuilding the altar because right worship as God should be central to God's people. And then comes along Ezra a long time after him. And Ezra leads the effort in rebuilding the people and teaching them God's law uh, because Understanding God's law was, was vital, was central to them living in obedience to God's people. As we saw even in the, the first covenant in Exodus chapter 19, he says, if you are obedient to my covenant. And then comes Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is responsible for, for leading the, the, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He's like this kind of builder-soldier guy, <laughs> is a good way to describe him, I think. And they're about reestablishing God's city, God's people, protecting what they have built. So where does this book sit in biblical history? I think that's a good place to start. And to, st to start, we have to go back to the very beginning. So you might see, uh, yes, yeah, so we can have that one. Thanks, Ethan. You know, you might remember that, that God created the world. Hopefully you understand that God created the world. Um, he created Adam and Eve to live in the garden in his presence, in, in communion with him. Um, but it wasn't long before things went wrong and sin entered the world 
through their disobedience and rejection of God. And that's what we call the fall. Um, But even in that, God promised to uh, redeem his people. And so he called, years later, he called Abraham. He called him out of a pagan land and out of a pagan family to come and follow the one true God. And Abraham uh, had a long-awaited son called Isaac. uh, And Isaac had a son called Jacob. And Jacob's name became Israel, which is the name, obviously, of the nation of Israel. And you might remember then that Israel, uh, the, the, the people of Israel, the family of Jacob, ended up in Egypt, and they were eventually in Egypt enslaved for 400 years, 400 years as slaves in captivity in the land of Egypt. And then God works in the most miraculous of ways through the birth of a wee baby. And if that rings a bell, it should ring a bell. He works through the birth of a wee baby boy, and he raises him up to be the, the one who will lead his people out of slavery and captivity. And so Moses leads the people out, and you might remember there were plagues that came upon, that God sent the plagues, and eventually the Pharaoh says, yes, let my people get out of here. But then he changes the men, he chases them across the desert, and God leads them through the water, which is a symbol of baptism. Um, I could get into this stuff very deeply, so if I'm going in too deep, you have to stop me or something. Um, but he leads them through the water of baptism, through, it's through not the baptism, through uh, the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai. And I put that in capitals because Mount Sinai is key in this biblical history. Mount Sinai is the place where God gives them the fullest version of the covenant that we have in the Old Testament. He promises there, and we'll see this later on, to be their people, or to be their God, and they will be his people. And he's going to do this by giving them a land to live in. And so through Moses and then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And as the nation is established then, uh, God raises up judges to lead the people. um, uh, And then uh, they kind of don't work out too well. There's a lot of bad judges. and, And then the people ask for a king and God gives them kings. And the most famous king is David and we'll come back to him later on. Um, but David's grandson, after, David, after uh, don't, things don't go, don't go too well, and, and, and during the reign of David's grandson, the, king, uh, the kingdom is divided. The kingdom is divided into a north. Do we have this slide? Yes, a northern kingdom. Thanks, Ethan. The northern kingdom, which is 10 tribes, um, which is known as Israel. And then in the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is, the, the, the two, two tribes out of the 12, uh, and that kingdom is called Judah. And because of their repeated and unfaithfulness and disobedience, because they have turned in civil war against each other, uh, God uh, leads them finally then into exile. The northern kingdom first to Assyria and then the southern kingdom to Judah uh, to Babylon. Now, I've already mentioned, obviously, this word exile a lot. We've seen it in the scripture reading. Um, but, and, and that's definitely the context of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's also happening in the context of covenant, covenant and exile. And it's really, under, it's really important to understand how, through covenant, God relates to his people and what happens when the people break his covenant. This is fundamental, not just for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's fundamental for us understanding our relationship with God. So let's have a look at this relationship between covenant and exile. And we can sum it up like this. God made a promise to Israel. That's the covenant. And the promise was this, that, that, he, that, that they would be his people. And, and, and they would be his people through whom he would bless all peoples. So they were going to be his people and live in this land and live out the way of God. And, and then the, uh, the, through that nation, God would bless all the nations. 
And he would do this by raising up their ultimate leader, the ultimate heir of King David to rule over them. Obviously, that's pointing forward to Jesus. And he gave his people the privilege of worshiping him and obeying him. But sadly, they were continually unfaithful and he disciplined them severely. We already saw in Second Chronicles, his wrath was poured out against them. And that's when they were taken into exile. And the first thing that we need to see about covenant is that, that covenants are the unique gift of the God of the Bible to his people, right? So, so no other religion or culture claims this. Like covenants are a unique gift of Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, they're the unique way that God relates to his people. And a covenant, easy way to understand covenant is that a covenant is a promise made between two parties with obligations or responsibilities on both sides, okay? So, so you can think of, uh, a, a mar- if you've ever been to a wedding ceremony, a marriage, in a wedding ceremony, the, the two parties make a covenant. They make promises to each other, and both sides have obligations and responsibilities to keep their promises, to keep the covenant in a marriage, hopefully, there's an equal keeping of the covenant through the promises and the vows that we make. And that's a really kind of simple way to understand covenant. And, and covenants are, are unique to the God of the Bible. There's no other religion that says that, oh, I, our God has made a covenant with us. It's only through, it's only through Yahweh. And these covenants were gradually unfolded over time. Through the Old Testament, we see this happening through history. They were unfolded over time to the people of Israel. So we think of Eve, Adam and Eve. God created man and woman, and they lived in the garden in God's presence perfectly. And then sin entered when they disobeyed God and when they had rebellion in their hearts. And what I love about this is that even in the midst of their sin, even even right at the very beginning, Yes, there's consequences. Yes, curse comes into the world. But even then, God makes this, this, this promise to Eve. And, and it's, this, is the, this is kind of the prototype of the covenant. Right there at the very beginning, he unconditionally says, I am going to give you, Eve, an offspring who is going to crush evil forever. That made me emotional. And so it's this incredible act of grace. In the moment of their sin, when, when, when all hope seems lost, God says, Eve, even though through you and through your husband sin has come into the world, through you salvation is going to come into the world. Isn't that incredible? Right there in Genesis chapter 3. It says, your seed will bruise his head and he will bruise his heel. And so this, uh, this covenant is, is made between God and his people and, and, and time goes on. And we see that things actually go from bad to worse. Because from Adam and Eve, as they leave the garden, the world becomes more and more evil and filled with more and more uh, evil people. And finally we get to Noah. I don't know if you know the story of Noah, but God has decided that he's going to uh, actually pour out his judgment on the, and, and, this, and cover the earth in a flood to, to wash away evil, as it were. To have a new creation, to have a fresh start. And so he tells Noah, build this boat. Um, and maybe you've seen uh, Evan Almighty, a movie. It's kind of like that, only uh, <laughs> I could just tell you to read the Bible. Um, read the Bible. Uh, and, and because Noah is faithful, when, when God brings him through the water again, see what I'm doing here? Through the water again, because Noah has proved himself faithful, uh, God promises again 
never to destroy the earth. Yesterday, driving up to Palomina with my kids in the back of the car, and Abigail loves everything like unicorns and rainbows. She saw a rainbow and she's really excited. And even Abigail, who is four years old, knows that that is a sign that God made a promise. God made a promise never to destroy the earth again. This covenant that, that God made with Eve is being developed even more. Not, not only, is, not only is, is, is God going to send one that's going to defeat evil, God has promised now that, that he is never again going to destroy the earth. And so things continue. Again, things go from bad to worse until we get to Abraham. And Abraham is called, along with his wife Sarah, and they're called to leave their family, to leave these pagan beliefs, to leave the, 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 the evil, wicked city that they live in and come and follow him. Now, they're old, and they can't have any children because they're old. Um, but yet God makes this promise to Abraham, a new, a, 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 an extension, a development of this covenant. God promises Abraham that, that he is going to give him a people and a land. He says, Abraham, I know you're old, but you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to be the father of God's chosen people. And they're going to live in the land that God leads you into. And of course, Abraham and Sarah both can't really believe it. And they try various things to make it happen their own way. But still the promise is there. This covenant development through history. I am going to have a people who are mine. What was lost in Eden. I'm going to do the work of recovering that. As we heard earlier, Abraham's family ends up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God works through the, the miraculous birth of this wee baby boy. And God brings them out of Egypt through Moses. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is one of the key moments in the history of the people of Israel. This is where we see the old covenant come into its fullest form. And this is the, our first reading that we read this morning in Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to read it again. I think it's on the screen. This is what God, God has taken Moses up Mount Sinai, where it's almost like God has dipped his toe onto the mountain and it's covered in fire and thunder. Like God has had a little bit of his presence there. And Moses comes down, he's all sunburnt. Well, that's how I imagine it. Like he's, he's glowing, he has to cover his face because the people can't even look at him because he's been almost in the presence of God. And this is what God says to them here. He's rescued them from slavery, right? Through sacrifice. He's brought them through the water. And he brings them to this place. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's destroyed their enemies. They've all been drowned in the sea. And then he says, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You're in this hopeless situation. You have the world's superpower who are enslaving you and, and you're in captivity. What are you going to do? God bore you on eagle's wings to myself. And here's what he says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and he came down the mountain and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you see what's happening here? This is what is known as the old covenant, right? This is the covenant. There's two parties 
making promises to each other, both with obligations and responsibilities. This is how God relates to his people. So God says, listen, I promise that you will be my treasured possession and, and, and you will be my people. And you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. That means you're going to be a kingdom of people who represent my royalty here on earth and minister my goodness and my grace to the people of the world. And you're also going to be a holy nation set apart just as I am set apart. That is my promise to you. And all the people together say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're saying, amen. Yes, I am in. They're both making promises here and they have responsibilities. The Lord says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So their side of the promise is that they have to obey him and keep, uh, and keep the covenant, obey God's word. And then we have the giving of the law, which teaches them how to live as God's people after he's rescued them. Two parties making promises to each other with obligations on both sides. And so then we have Moses who leads the people through a series of disobediences and then Joshua takes over the mantle and leads them into the promised land. And the land is kind of key in this understanding. The land is where the covenant is lived out. When they are faithful to God, this is what we see through the book of Joshua and Judges and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You see, when they are being faithful to God, when they're obeying God, the, the, the things go well, they flourish. The borders of their land actually expand. But, but when they are unfaithful to God, they're getting raided by enemies. Uh, they're not flourishing. Uh, their borders are shrinking. The land is key to understanding this. But then God says, sends a king. He sends David, who's the second king of Israel and, and probably the best and most faithful king that Israel had. And God renews his promise to David. It's an expansion of this original covenant. And he says, uh, he says, David, I'm going to give you an eternal house. I'm going to give you a kingdom and a throne. This is God's covenant being uh, unfolded and enlarged. And God is promising through David, one who would come from his line. He's going to be of your family, David, who would be the true and forever king of the people. One who would lead and protect his people the way that kings are supposed to do, and one whose kingdom would last forever. And then as the nation of Israel is established, the covenant is ministered through the prophets. As the people live in the land, God sends the prophets, and they have kind of really two functions. Firstly, to remind the people of their covenant, and secondly, to, to, to warn them of what happens if they break the covenant, right? So they're teaching them. You see this over and over again. Guys, remember God's covenant. Remember God's covenant. Be obedient. Be faithful. And it's going to go well for you. You're going to flourish. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. So You have God's people living in the land of God has given to them, relating to him through covenant. God's people under God's reign in God's land. So what did it look like to live in, under the old covenant of God? Well, according to First and Second Chronicles, uh, Israel's history uh, kind of tells, it's either the people seeking God or forsaking Him, right? You have, this is kind of the history you have. At times they're seeking God and at times they're forsaking Him. And seeking God looked like serving God with a whole heart and doing what is right in His eyes. It's orient, orientating your life towards him in act of faith and obedience. That's what it means to seek God. It's, it's diligently fulfilling the, the law and obeying his commands. It's opposing idolatry. So we're not going to worship anything else. We're just going to worship the one true God. And it's right worship of God through the temple system of offering sacrifices because this is the way God is intended to be. 
You see, seeking God meant seeking him with your whole life. And then in return, he grants mercy when we approach him with faith and repentance and the offering of sacrifices. That's what it meant to seek God under the old covenant. And the results of seeking God for God's people was this kind of whole life flourishing, right? They would have large families. They would be, they would be successful in their building projects. They, they would receive riches and honor. They would have military strength and success. They would have peace in the land. Conversely then, forsaking God, which we see a lot of in the Old Testament histories, is rejecting the faith. It's, it's idolatry. It's neglecting and abusing the temple and all its systems, right? It's despising and rejecting the word of the prophets. When the prophets come and say, remember the covenant, live this way, it's saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say to me. I don't want to hear what God is saying right now. I, I, I reject that. It's, it's not living in peace, it's living in violence. And especially through the, the books of, of, of judges and kings, you see the people descend into violence against each other and against other people. It's not what God intended. And it's refusal to seek reconciliation with God. This is what this has all been about. It's about God and his people coming together. And God has made that happen. And the people reject that. They reject the sacrifices of atonement. They reject humility in prayer. And just as seeking God was to, was to live in the way he intended and to receive flourishing, forsaking God was rejecting the way that God intended for them to live. And therefore, rejection of the flourishing that God intended for them. So they were defeated by their enemies. They were continually being raided by foreign nations. There was sickness and death all over the place. And eventually, they forfeited the land that God had given to them. And this continual forsaken God led them to be at the place that the people are in at the start of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we see that the people were not faithful to God's covenant, and this led to exile. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, and Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now, I think it's really important to note that God was not impatient with his people, right? To put this into context, there is about 800 years between Joshua leading the people across the River Jordan into the Promised Land and them finally being taken into captivity. 800 years. You cannot say that God wasn't patient. Over and over and over again, God, in, God waits while you have unfaithful judges and unfaithful people and tyrant kings. Civil war, the division of the kingdom. And God sends the prophets over and over again to warn the people of their, about their unfaithfulness and to invite them back into the flourishing. God sends them opportunity after opportunity to be faithful to him. But eventually, the Israelites get to the point where they had completely forsaken God. They, they, they refuse to listen to him and obey his word. They think it's essentially what has happened in Eden with that under Adam and Eve is happening again. But we, we, we know what you're saying, but we just reject it. And they get to this point of no return. This is what we read earlier in 2 Chronicles 35, verses 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers. By the way, when you see that word, the Lord, in capital letters in your Bible, that's Yahweh. That's the name of God in Hebrew. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently, so over and over and continually, to them by his messengers. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God is compassionate and he persistently sends them warning and invitation to come back and live in the way he wants them to live. 
But what did they do? Verse 16, they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Like, there's no remedy here. That God is saying, you, you, you've reached the point of no return. I don't know what to do with you anymore. That's what I would say to my kids. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with you. I, I don't think I've ever got to that point with my kids. Maybe someday. But I don't know what to do with you. There is no remedy here. So finally, when it was clear that the people had rejected God, they received the results of their unfaithfulness. This is, I've been patient with you. I have pursued you for 800 years. And you keep rejecting me. So for a time, for a time you're going to see what it's like to live without me completely. God says you're going to be exiled for 70 years. 70 years. Actually, what we saw in Second Chronicles earlier is that God calls this a, a time of Sabbath, right? That the time of Sabbath of the land, that there's going to be a, a time of, of rest for the land. You're going to be gone. You're going to live in the results of your unfaithfulness. And so first, the northern kingdom, known as Israel, that we saw on the map earlier, was, was, was taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. There's lots of big competing empires, Assyria, Persia, Babylon, all around the same time and all moving against each other in different ways. And so the northern kingdom first was taken uh, captive by the Assyrians in, in 722. And then Babylon invaded, uh, then Babylon in, invaded in uh, 605, so 100 or so years later. They destroyed Jerusalem and they took many of its leading people and, and, and uh, uh, leaders and all that kind of stuff in the settlements near Babylon. And that's actually where when Daniel is taken into captivity, if you know that story in the Bible as well. And crucially... This is when the temple was destroyed. This is the end of the temple. The end of the place where God's presence dwelt and, and where people met God. It wasn't like us where we have access to God all the time. They, had to be in the, they could only come into the presence of God once a year in the temple. And the temple is destroyed. We read that, didn't we, in our reading that all the treasures of the temple are all destroyed. It was the end of, the, of David's monarchy. And it was the end of Judah as a nation state. And then, while the Israelites are in captivity, Babylon actually falls to the Persian Empire under this king, Cyrus, who we meet in Ezra chapter 1. And Cyrus has a different idea about ruling empires, right? He has this idea that, that he wants to permit all the exiled people. Now, it wasn't just Israel, you have to remember. These, these empires captured lots of people. And he says, well, I'm going to let all the exiled people return to their lands, and so really the setup for the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is found at the very end of the book of Chronicles. Chronicles, by the way, is just kind of like the big history book. We're chronicling everything that happened in history here. Second Chronicles 36, 22 to 23. This is the setup for Ezra and Nehemiah. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of, king, of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the Lord is doing this. And there for a reason to tell us that God is doing this. So that he, may, he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the, the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now notice that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a fulfillment of prophecy by Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophecies that this exile, because of their disobedience, is going to last for 70 years. 
And this is what's happening in the Ezra and Nehemiah. You see how all of Scripture ties together? And one thing I'm really keen for people to understand, us as Christians, we need to understand that the, all the books of the Bible aren't telling their own story. They're all together telling the one story. The story of God's redemption plans being worked out through the events of history. And Isaiah actually has an an even more accurate prophecy, or just as accurate, I should say. Isaiah 44, verse 28 says, Who says of Cyrus, God says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Wow. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is Isaiah. Before they've even gone into exile, Isaiah is saying, through this foreign king, God is going to use him powerfully to bring back his people. This is where we are at, at the very beginning of Ezra, Nehemiah. The people, as a result of their unfaithfulness, not God's, their unfaithfulness, find themselves in captivity. But God is still moving. God is still working. So this is a time when when all hope seems lost for God's people. Because if if all the, the covenants that we've looked at, if all the promises are to be fulfilled, if God is going to bring about salvation of the world, uh, through this nation, through this people, well, it looks like his plans have failed. If the Messiah, the descendant of King David, was really going to come from Judah, well, it looks like those prophecies were all untrue. And this is a good point to note as well, that, that Ezra and Nehemiah sit kind of in the middle of our Old Testament, so like there, in, in the English Bible, but this, is, this book is actually at the end of the Hebrew Bible. There, there is no Old Testament history after this, right? And the reason it is where it is in our Bible is because our books of the Bible are organized by type, so all the kind of history books go together and the prophets go together and that kind of thing. But the end, the events of Ezra and Nehemiah are happening at the very end of the Old Testament. There's nothing between the events of these books and the start of the New Testament. Like hope really is lost. Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. And remember, that's the place where God's presence dwells on earth. And so it's almost as if, and I'm sure it felt this way to the people, it's almost as if that God has left. And on top of this, the people of Israel, God's supposedly chosen people, the the people through whom salvation of the world would come, are scattered across this vast empire of Persia. Hope is lost. But here's what's so amazing about this. Even though all hope seems lost, God is at work. Even though the temple's in ruin, the people are scattered, the city is destroyed, God is at work. And this is how God works, isn't it? Even even though the night seems at its darkest, the dawn is coming. This is how God's work. God is working through all the events of history to bring about his redemption plan. It was God who stirred King Sarah's heart to send the people back to Jerusalem. The king might go, oh, I just had a great idea. It was God who stirred it up. And when things seem hopeless, God is at work. This is how God works. His plans are unfolding for the world, for our church, for our lives, exactly as he means them to, and nothing can derail God's plans. God is working now, here, today, just as much as he was in Ezra and Nehemiah. And he's working to bring about his plans for the world. And so I think there's some encouragement even before we get into Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's this. 
I'm not pausing for dramatic effect. I'm just taking a drink. When things seem so, so dark, God is at work. Like, I, I, we can't really imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite in exile. But you would literally be saying, where is God? God is done. And this is how we find things in our lives sometimes, isn't it? Things get to breaking point. And when they get to breaking point, we say, there's no way forward. We realize that God is at work for our good and for his glory. See, God is always at work and his plans are always for his glory and for our good. The two things are inseparable. And this is what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we take this overview of Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is that God guides all of history according to his plans. God is in complete control and every event of history has happened exactly as he planned it to. There are no chances with God. So, so whatever job or whatever you, you have or whatever street you live on or whatever school your kids go to or whatever sports club you're in or whatever it is, you are there because God has put you there for his glory, for your joy and for the advancement of his kingdom just like he was doing in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it also means that whatever thing you might be suffering right now, whatever hardship or illness or injustice that you're facing right now, you're there for his glory, for your benefit, and for the advancement of his kingdom, just like Ezra and Nehemiah. At the start of this book, all hope seems lost. But God hasn't abandoned them, and that is key to remember. He was working through the events of history to bring salvation to the world. And that's why we're calling this series unfinished hope. Unfinished hope because Ezra and Nehemiah is, is about having hope in the now and the not yet. What do I mean by that? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah tells of this uh, return from exile, working to restore God's kingdom, but it's an unfinished work, right? Rebuilding the temple, restoring the people, rebuilding the wall, but throughout the story, we learn that this work is unfinished, and actually in, in, in these books, it remains unfinished. See, this is where Ezra and Nehemiah parallels us in the church. We are in the now and the not yet. A different kind of now and the not yet, but we have received Jesus. We have entered his kingdom, but still we haven't received the kingdom in all its fullness. We are joining in God's work, right? That's what even at the start today, we said joining God in the renewal of all things. Someone prayed that in our, in our prayer time before our gathering this morning. But the work remains unfinished. And it will remain unfinished until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom forever. And that's why, while we live in this world and work for the good of the kingdom, we do so knowing that one day it will be complete. Even though right now it feels unfinished, it will be complete. And so we can put it this way. The church exists in the now and not yet of joining God in the renewal of all things with the knowledge that Jesus is our true and final hope. That's our first great lesson that we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah. That we, as a church, the body of Christ, exist in the thus far unfinished kingdom of God on earth. So you can think about it like this. It's a bit like stepping into a house that's half built. So say the walls are halfway up, right? You can go into that house. You can be in that house. You can say, truly, I am in this house. And it's very clear what the house is going to look like. You can see where the windows are, the doors are. You can see the size of it. You can see the layout of it, the shape of it. And you are, in a very real sense, in that house. 
Even though the house is there, it's yet unfinished. And so it is with the church. The church is this unfinished house. The church shows us the layout and the design of God's kingdom, right? But it's still not complete. But one day, the house will be completely finished. It's almost as if the house is being built around us. In fact, we are helping to build the house. And in fact, we are the building materials. We are being built up into this house. And one day, the master builder, Jesus himself, will come back and complete the building project. This is what we are part of. And Jesus is our only hope. He's our final hope. We can't finish this work on our own. And so we join God in the renewal of all things, in his work, knowing that it's unfinished and that he is our final and true hope. And the other great theme throughout this book is working in conjunction with God. We're joining God in his renewing work. You see, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, these three leaders in, in, these, in the, these books, they were working to restore the temple, to restore the people, and to re- rebuild the city. But each of these works ends in an anticlimax, and that's what we're going to notice as we go through this book. You kind of get to their point where you're like, wow, you're, you're making some headway here, and then they either do something that God didn't tell them to do, or, or, or they're putting in all this work, and you think, oh, maybe something's going to happen here, and it ends in an anticlimax. You see, God had promised to rebuild the temple. He had promised to restore the people. And he had promised to build the new Jerusalem. But the fulfillment of all these promises is not in a physical temple. It's not in the people of Israel. And it's not in the city of Jerusalem. The fulfillment of all God's promises comes through and in Jesus. The fulfillment of God's promises, the new temple, that's Jesus. And a new people, that's the church. And a new and a new city, that's the new creation. This is how we, the church, the body of Jesus, are the continue of God's plan to bring salvation into the world. This is what God has been doing from Genesis to Revelation, from the Garden of Eden to the new creation. Creating a people for himself, out of the overflow of his love of himself within the Trinity, right? And nothing can stop his plans. Nothing's going to stop his plans. Not even sin entering into the world could stop his plans. His love for us is so great that nothing could stop him bringing us into the kind of world that he wants us to live in. His salvation plans will be complete. Habakkuk 2, 13, I I say this verse a lot. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Will be. This is what God is working toward. And we are part of that promise being fulfilled. And all God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. This is why we sang earlier and why we sing the other song, Yes and Amen, right? Because 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 tells us, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in in Jesus. And that's why through Him we utter our Amen to God for His glory. So all the promises... All these different promises we've looked at already this morning, all these covenants, everything finds their fulfillment in Jesus. And they didn't see this in Ezra and Nehemiah. They didn't really see the bigger picture of what God was doing. 
They worked and worked for over, these two books cover a hundred years. For for over a hundred years, they worked and worked to do this rebuilding work. And we're going to see them face enemies. We're going to see them uh, face violence and and, and labor, working with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. We're going to do them some very strange things that God never told them to do. And of course, God uses their efforts, but they missed what God was doing. And so the second lesson we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah is this, that unless we are joining God in his work, all our efforts are in vain. We can, we can build all the structures of a good church, right? And that's what we do try to do that. Of course we do. We can uh, be committed to teaching the scriptures, but unless we're joining God in his work, led by the Holy Spirit, we're just building empty walls, Right? We can have missional communities. We can do our Sunday gatherings. We can give food to the food bank. We can teach our kids. But unless we are working with God, joining him in his work, being led by the Holy Spirit, we're just working for ourselves. Our church needs to be a church where Jesus is our shepherd. I am not the shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. I'm just an under-shepherd. Travis is just an under-shepherd. We all just play our part with Jesus as the pastor, the shepherd of our church. And we're just following him and submission to him. Because if we don't, all our efforts will be in vain. We'll end up with an anticlimax that we do in Ezra and Nehemiah. And we can apply this to our individual walk as well. Are we really following God's leading for our lives? Or are we just doing what we think Christians are supposed to do? It's vital that we are joining God in his work. Because then, and only then, Are we on the path to his true kingdom being built, the true temple, the true people, the true city? We've covered a bit of the background of this book, and hopefully you have an understanding of where it sits in history and this idea of covenant and and exile. And and we've seen the the main themes of this book, the unfinished hope, the, the hope in the now and the not yet, the joining God in his work. But I want to finish by reflecting on what this means for us. You see, There's a fundamental difference between us and the Old Testament people. We are not Old Testament people. We are New Testament people. We're a continuation of what God has been doing in the Old Testament, but there's a fundamental difference. God is, is still God, and he never changes. And so he still relates to his people in that uniquely God way, through covenant, right? But we're not under the old covenant like the people of Israel. You see, God has made a new covenant. A new covenant in Jesus. And, and God's grace is, is, is real and more powerful than our disobedience and unfaithfulness and rebellion. And so just as, as, as he was restoring Israel to the land in Ezra and Nehemiah, God now is restoring all of creation to himself through the work of Jesus. And the amazing thing is that, that even before Jesus came, the prophets knew that the old covenant was just temporary. They, they knew that it pointed to a new and better covenant. And that was available to the people if they had listened to the prophets. But you see, the people could never keep the covenant. Why? Because just like us, they're sinful, the impossible. We are rebellious and and unfaithful in our nature. But Isaiah foretold of one that would come, an obedient servant, who, who the New Testament calls Jesus, the Messiah. And he would give us this new covenant by his life, 
his death and resurrection. And the prophets declared, even before the people of Israel went into exile, that when that day comes, with the coming of this new servant leader, all his people will worship God in the right way, with right hearts, in spirit and in truth. Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant. I think it's going to be on the screen. There we go. This is Jeremiah speaking while he is still under the old covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. You see, you entered the old covenant by being born into the people of Israel. You enter the old covenant through birth, but you enter this new covenant through new birth when you're born again, when you trust in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. In other words, if if you're trusting in Jesus, God says to you, I am yours and you're mine. Do you hear God saying this to you this morning? Do you consider this? God has said to you, God is saying to you, I am yours and you're mine. Imagine that God of all creation, God Almighty, offers himself to you and says, I am yours and you're mine. I mean, this is like the, the, this is like intimate love language, isn't it? It's like intimate language of a husband and a wife. And this is how God relates to us. The law is no longer written on tablets. It's written on our hearts. And we know God and he knows us intimately. And this new covenant isn't a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. What does that mean? That means that there is nothing we can do to make God more loyal to us. There is nothing we can do that will make God cut us off. All the obligation is on God's side. If this was like a marriage ceremony that we talked about earlier, we would be sitting there thinking, this is the most unfair marriage ceremony I've ever heard. Why is all the obligation only on one side? Why is it the groom that's having to make all the promises and the bride isn't having to make any promises? The new covenant means that we are his and he is ours and we know him intimately and we will know him forever. And the best part about it is that it's all completely free. God makes the promise and he says he is the one who will keep it. So maybe you're thinking, well, what about this new covenant? If we break it, are we going to be like the Israelites? Are we going to be sent into exile? Here's the thing. We can't break the covenant. We can't. This is why Jesus came. He was born of a virgin with no earthly father so that he would be fully God. And he was born of a woman so that he would be fully human. And being fully human means that he keeps our side of the covenant for us. We're completely secure. Will God pour out his wrath on us when we are unfaithful? No. Because it's not our faithfulness that keeps the covenant. It's his. It's Jesus' faithfulness. Of course God desires us to be obedient and and to love him, to serve him, and, and he wants us to be faithful. He loves us. Of course he wants us to be faithful. 
course, he, he desires for, for our flourishing by living in the way that he commands us to live. But, but his new covenant is not dependent on our obedience. Please hear me, church. If you are in Jesus today, you are in the new covenant and there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God. If you are in Jesus, there is nothing you can do that can make God pour out his wrath on you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves you. Why? Just because he does. And he's never going to stop loving you. He made a promise to you. You see, this incredible thing that I know that I've gone on a long time, but I just want to finish with this. Jesus as God kind of creates and, and, and institutes the covenant. But Jesus as man keeps the covenant on our behalf. That's the gospel, right? Remember the night before Jesus' death, he instituted the communion meal that we'll come to in a second. And he takes a cup of wine. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And we have this new covenant sealed, not with the blood of sacrificed animals, but the blood of the Son of God. He's saying, look at my blood. It's a covenant to never leave us or forsake us. A covenant that all the spiritual blessings of Christ are now ours. A covenant that he is our God and we are his people. A covenant to keep us to the end. And nothing, nothing can ever change or break or bend or distort his promises to us. So as we study Ezra and Nehemiah over the coming months, as we see this unfinished hope the now and the not yet in which we live, right? We do so in the knowledge that our covenant is not the same as their covenant. God is, is never going to cut us off. We will never find ourselves in captivity. Jesus already paid the punishment for our unfaithfulness. He was exiled. So we don't have to be, right? And the punishment, his sacrifice was once and for all, it's done. And this is where we now stand as we join God in his renewing and rebuilding work. Come Holy Spirit, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we want to thank you for this new covenant that we have in your blood. We want to thank you, Lord, that uh, it's a covenant that um, no matter how unfaithful we are, that we cannot break it because you've already paid the punishment for our unfaithfulness in breaking the covenant. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we uh, learn from your word and hear from your word in Ezra and Nehemiah that um, you would teach us what it means to exist in this now and then you're not yet, in this unbreakable covenant, joining you in what you're doing in the world. Lord, we don't want to do anything that you're not telling us to do. We don't want to be working on stuff and putting our efforts and time into stuff that's futile. Lord, we want to be joining you in your work, in your renewing work, in your redeeming work. Father, I pray right now um, for those of us that I've had uh, terrible weeks for those of us that are going through things that are too hard to even talk about sometimes. Um, for those of us that just feel sick at the thought of how unfaithful we've been. I pray.